I help make sure that more students, and particularly students of color and students from low-income backgrounds, make it to and through college. Hello, and welcome to Proud to Be You, the official alumni podcast of Boston University. I am your host, Jeff Murphy. Thank you so much for tuning in to join us. Our guest today is Dr. Archie Kubarubia, a double terrier with a bachelor's degree from Sargent College and a master's degree from the Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. As you will hear, I have known Archie since he was a student, and I'm sure I can speak for everyone who knew him back in the day that we are not at all surprised to see the amazing impact he's had in the field of education, leading up to his current position with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Proud to Be You showcases the journeys of some of Boston University's most interesting and accomplished alumni. Inspiring grads share the highs, the lows, and the challenges they've overcome along the way from out to innovative careers. No matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. All right. Well, Archie, this will be fun, uh, at least for me. Um, yes. As you know, uh, you were literally one of the first people I probably met during my time at BU. I won't say wow. how long ago that was, but it was a really long time. So I'm thrilled to have you here on the Proud to Be You podcast, and and we can catch up about the last 23 years or so. Oh, my gosh. Well, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. So I, as I was getting ready for today, I realized, you know, I knew you as a student, but I don't know much about your origin story. I don't know oh, where you grew cool. up and particularly how you found yourself coming to BU. Yeah, yeah. Well, so interestingly enough, I was actually born and raised overseas. I was born and raised in the Philippines. And then I traveled the, the world a lot because my mom worked for an international development organization. And then randomly, we landed in Rhode Island, of all places. Um, and so when I was looking for colleges and universities, my parents definitely said, you should look in the New England area. And so Boston U was definitely part of my college search process there. Uh, I could tell you that I really didn't know what I wanted to do because I was uh, interested in a bunch of things um, and eventually just landed into the health sciences. Uh, so I was actually admitted to the, at, at that point, which was the combined bachelor's and master's program in physical therapy at Sargent. I think it's a doctoral program now. Um, that was a five-year program then where you would graduate with your bachelor's and master's degrees. Um, and so I could tell you that when I took the tour at BU, and I don't know if they still have the presence host, but when I took the, the tour, the presence hosts were wearing green jackets. And those green jackets uh, were seared into my memory, and I, I can talk more about that later, but I really, really felt super comfortable being uh, on campus in, in a city that's like, uh, that, like Boston, and it was very bustling. Um, and so as soon as I took that tour, I knew that BU was it for me. I do want to ask you about the president's hosts yeah. uh, and I'm going to jump around on you a little bit, but yeah. you came into Sargent college. I did. Yes. And now you work in uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, which has yeah. a tremendous impact on global health, et cetera, et cetera. So looking back now at who you were when you came to BU, would mm -hmm. that Archie, be surprised to see where you are now? You know, it's interesting, probably yes and no, um, because one of the things that I experienced at BU was the student life organizations, uh, student activities organizations. Um, I can tell you that that green jacket story um, 
is one of many stories about what I experienced during my freshman year um, at, at BU. The other one that I, I'll point out is the orientation leaders or student advisors out of the orientation office. Um, I don't know if they still wear red shirts, but back then they wore red shirts. And so I had these green jackets and red shirts kind of stuck in my memory. And when I experienced those things as a prospective student and as a freshman year student, I said, I want to be those things. Um, and so I very intentionally looked for opportunities to apply to be a president. So as I applied to be a student advisor, I applied to be a resident assistant. And so my student leadership experience at BU really, I think, paved the way for how I connected what I was doing in school. And then I, I can talk about how I switched my program at the last minute there. Um, and then kind of what I'm doing now uh, as part of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Right. And again, of course, I, you know, I got to know you as that incredibly involved student. Was that first semester freshman year, you got to campus and immediately started getting involved with all of these great outside of the classroom experiences or totally, did you a little yeah. bit of time to get settled? No, I kind of just jumped in because like I said, I had this, this vision in my mind. I really remember saying, I want to be those people. Um, and so whether those student leaders back then realized how much impacts they were having on me as a new student. I don't know that how much they realized that, but that is kind of a primary driver of why I decided to just jump in and kind of experience all the things. The good so news is that there's freshman year. What are, what are the specific oh, yeah. leadership positions you, you took? Oh my gosh. Year and... Well, there's very few leadership positions you can get as, as a first year student, but I took the opportunity to really just find out again, like how did you become a president's host? How did you become a tour guide? Um, you couldn't be a student advisor, I think until your sophomore year, but I still found out how to do that. In fact, I, um, I applied to be an international student advisor when they were doing international orientation at that time. And so I was able to do that as well. Um, interestingly, uh, I, started the X-Files Club when I was at BU. So there was, I realized there was not an X-Files Club and I love the X-Files at that time. You got to remember this was 1997, uh, it was on a day. And so I found uh, an advisor who would help start the club with me, uh, Dr. Alan Ward, actually, who was, I think, the Associate Dean of Students at that time. And my first um, boss at BU. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. And we started, so I was the founding president of the X-Files Club at BU. How do you feel like that's aged for you? I, I feel like I've checked out the X-Files maybe a couple of years ago. and I, was I like, know, oh, man, it's okay, but I, I still wear it as a, as a proud, like I used to tell it actually as a story when I became a tour guide. I said, there's there's a hundred different clubs and organizations here at BU. And if you can't find one that suits you, you can literally start one from scratch, which is what I did. And I think that's still true today. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so you're you're at Sargent College. I don't know yep. what kind of classes you're taking your first two years, but as I was reflecting back on again how I got to know you those in those early years for me here at BU, would it be fair to say that your outside of the classroom experiences were maybe a little bit more impactful? I feel like you were heading down. Yeah. That and I don't want to discount the experiences that I had in the program. And in fact, my freshman year, I lived in the uh, sergeant floor at Rich Hall on West Campus. And so I was surrounded by peers who were in my cohort and we were going to the same classes, which was fantastic, by the way. If they're still doing kind of specialty housing, that's fantastic because it allows the students to really get to know folks uh, in their classes and in their programs. And so I had a really great time with my classmates 
through kind of the, the general courses, biology, chemistry, et cetera. And then I was doing these things extracurricularly and they were also interesting to me. Um, and so I decided, let's see how far I can take this. Uh, and then at some point, and I can tell you it's probably my senior year, I decided one tipped over more than the other. Um, and that's when I decided to actually quit the program, the MSPT program, and just take my bachelor's there and then switch to the master's in higher ed administration at the School of Education. And that happens to a lot of students that are like super involved in, in some of these things that you did. I, I have to laugh a little bit because I always feel like the majority of folks that work in <laughs> higher education didn't grow up thinking someday I'm going to work in higher ed, but you exactly. did make the decision. You, you think it was your senior year. I did. Yeah. And, and it was one of those things where I credit my uh, mentor at that time, Craig Mack, who was the director of the orientation office. And a mentor <laughs> of mine as well, for sure. Fantastic. There you go. Because I really, so you should have seen my eyes when I realized that you could do this for a living. Like you could be a student leader and work on a campus as a career. And to me, that opened up a whole host of just opportunities. So like I said, I was also resident assistant. So I said, Ooh, I could do things in orientation. I could do things in activities. I could do things in housing and residence life. Um, and there's lots and lots of colleges and universities across the U.S. And so to me, th that was kind of a, my, my gateway into a career in higher ed. So senior year, you um, had to decide to switch the program that you're in. You still went on immediately to, to get your master's in a five-year. Totally, yes. Are, yeah. Was that so, difficult? Was BU pretty flexible about allowing you to make that kind of It was very, thing? yeah, it was very interesting. I was actually most concerned about what my parents' reactions <laughs> Uh, we're going to be, um, because they said, you know, obviously you, you got to go finish your, your, your intended degree. And so, um, unbeknownst to them, I had taken the GRE at that point, my, I think my senior year so that I could apply to and get into the, the, the program at the school of education, um, which I did. So it was a fairly seamless transition. Uh, I talked with my academic advisors at Sargent at that point, and they understood kind of the trajectory I was in. And I basically said, hey, I could finish this, but then I don't know that my heart will be in it. And so they were very, very supportive. Um, and I'm actually very surprised uh, how seamless that particular process was. Um, so yeah, so my undergrad is in health sciences and then my master's is in higher ed administration. So tell me about your master's. When, when you start taking those grad classes, what, what are you thinking is the intended trajectory? You're thinking someday I want to be dean of students. Someday I you want know, to do this. At that point, all I wanted to do was keep doing orientation. I love doing orientation, and so I said, in order to do the job, I need some credentials. Um, and so I really appreciated that BU had a higher ed administration program, and so, um, and and the fact that I could finish it in a year, which was fantastic. So I took the courses, um, great courses in history of higher education. Um, it's an administration degree, so there was some uh, great courses around how to do plan, like strategic planning and administration and budgeting, which was was super fantastic. Um, and then as soon as I finished in a year there, I went to get my first orientation new student programs job at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. Were you at the time, you know, obviously you, you loved your orientation experience, wanted to do that. So you were looking specifically for those jobs. I mean, did you just end up 
at Northern Arizona or was that like a destination for you? It, it was so interestingly, again, speaking of mentors and networks, I had the opportunity to attend a number of conferences as a student leader. And one of them was a National Orientation Directors Association Conference or NODA. Um, and Craig at that point was super, super involved. And so I had the opportunity to get to know his networks and really kind of then adopt my own network. Um, and so NAU was part of his network because uh, my boss at that time, Cindy Payne, was friends with Craig Mack. So networking is everything. And so I had uh, the great opportunity to have that experience right after BU. So tell me about that experience of being a full-time professional, doing this oh my thing that goodness. you loved. Yeah. So number one, it's super, super interesting. And, and this kind of gave me a, a taste of really why I love what I do. Um, Northern Arizona University is a little bit different um, from Boston University. Uh, it is in Flagstaff, Arizona. It is one of the three public institutions in Arizona. And the student populations uh, are a little different. Um, they serve a, a, a huge uh, native student population. But what I was able to see was how similar kind of orientation programs needed to be to help students be set on the path to success. Um, and so I was able to apply what I learned as a student leader doing orientation at BU and then apply that with what I was doing at Northern Arizona University. So I know, obviously, you went on to get your doctorate as well. Were you thinking, did you know you wanted to do that full time? Were you thinking, you know, what great benefit of working at a college or university? Yes. Being able yeah. To you know, take some classes I, while you're working. So uh, tell me about your decision to leave Northern Arizona. Sure, and, yeah, uh, no, no there, there, it, it's interesting when you think, uh, so I was thinking about my career trajectory, kind of where I landed and things seem to have kind of fallen into place. Um, Northern Arizona was going through a little bit of a reorg. And so I was thinking, okay, should I look for opportunities because I needed, I felt like I needed to get uh, my terminal degree anyway. Here's the thing, by the way, if, when you're a 22-year-old working at an institution, trying to work with students that are literally maybe a year younger than you or even older than you, I felt a little, um, I don't, I, I don't want to say unprepared, but I felt like I needed a little bit more credentialing behind me to be able to actually carry that position forward. So I knew that I had a doctoral program kind of in my future. So when NAE was doing a little bit of a reorg, I was looking for opportunities to get me back to the East Coast. Um, and I saw that there was an interim director of orientation um, position available at the University of Rhode Island. Um, and so I actually landed in URI for a little bit just to ground my bearings, um, get, my, uh, get my bearings in terms of getting back to the East Coast. My parents loved that I was back, <laughs> back in my home state. Um, and as I was thinking and working through my position at URI, that voice in my head about you still need to get your terminal degree um, was really ringing in my ear. And so I had been applying to different programs uh, a year before. I got into the program at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And so I decided since it was an interim role, let me go ahead and just kind of jump into the, the deep end of the pool, as it were, and then pursue my doctorate at GW. So you do your, your doctorate at GW. Um, are you doing some really interesting research? Um, I think that's uh, 
the time that you perhaps yeah. started doing some things with the U.S. Department of Education. That's exactly right. Yeah. So again, location was fantastic. It's interesting because my um, my doctoral uh, advisor, uh, Dr. Brian Bridges, who's now the Secretary of Education in New Jersey, which again, which is fantastic. Uh, we were doing some work around um, student identity. And again, I was trying to tie it back to first year student experiences kind of I was taking what I was learning from working in orientation new student programs and seeing if I could create some some research and study out of that um, I had the opportunity to intern at the U.S. Department of Education thanks to another former BU alum who's one of my best friends Nick Lee who was at that point working at the U.S. Department of Education so he's, again speaking of networks he put in a good word for me with the office of the Secretary of Education Margaret Spellings at that time she was starting up a commission on the future of higher education um, and I interviewed and then I got in. And so I was uh, a staffer for the Spellings Commission um, and I can talk a little bit about that, that. So having been at an institution, working with students and then seeing the policy side of it was super fascinating to me. So tell me more about the U.S. Department of Education mm -hmm. and what you know now versus what you knew then. And I'm yeah. just curious to know if that, how, how that experience impacted your views on education, whether it be public education, higher education, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, when I said that being at BU and doing all of those student leadership things opened my mind to the opportunities at an institution, working at the Department of Education opened my mind even more because we're talking now about not just one college or university or two colleges or universities, but the potential impact on 4,000 plus colleges and universities across the U.S. And these institutions look anything from a college, a community college to regional four-year public to a private, a liberal arts institution to a large research one institution. And so seeing the power that kind of a federal lens could have on how to improve outcomes, particularly for underrepresented students, really, really opened my eyes. Um, and then it also made me appreciate kind of the specific roles that each stakeholder has, right? So for example, the federal government can't do everything, right? So there's a federal government that plays a role, state governments play a role, accreditation agencies play a role, advocacy organizations play a role. So when we think about student success, particularly for underrepresented students, each of these stakeholders and entities really plays a role. And I got a chance to really see and experience that when I was working for the department. This episode is brought to you by Be Connect, Boston University's exclusive online platform for alumni and student networking, mentoring, and more. Explore the profiles of nearly 30,000 Terriers and see how they're willing to help. Join groups to network with members who share your city, industry, or interests. Share advice or mentorship with students in need. Promote your business in the alumni business directory. Or find jobs posted by and for the BU community. Activate your free profile today at buconnects.com. So you finish your doctorate. Then what happens? Then I was kind of on a, a federal career trajectory, um, I'd done a number of things when I was at the department. So I worked for both uh, administrations under Margaret Spellings and Arnie Duncan. 
um, on some really, really cool and interesting projects, some of which never saw the light of day because that's the government, um, but some that I think really made a difference. And so this is going to be super, super wonky. But as an example, um, the federal government collects data from colleges and universities across the U.S. every year. And this is what informs products like the College Scorecard, which is on the U.S. Department of Education, or College Navigator. This allows students and families to go on a trusted website to take a look at what are the outcomes, what are the costs for all of those 4,000 plus colleges or universities. Historically, that data collection did not include students who were transferring in or part-time students to colleges and universities. It was mostly focused on students who start full-time and who start first-time. Thanks to the work that I did along with a number of folks who served on an advisory committee for Secretary Duncan at that time, took a little bit of time, the federal government now collects data on part-time students and students who transfer in so that you as a member of the public can go into these websites and find out how well did the institution do to serve these students. Um, and so it's super wonky. It's nobody's going to really appreciate it, but I I see that as an impact that I've had um, with the in, with uh, with with when I was at the department. Right, and the scorecard. I mean, it's fascinating. And obviously, I'm somebody yeah. who has worked in higher education for very longer than I'd like to admit. Not to get we were talking about the federal government, and I, I don't want to get a political angle on this, but you know, in the last few years. Certainly, many people would say that higher education in particular has really been under the microscope mm. and in terms of effectiveness and yeah. what are the outcomes. And so I'm curious to know, are, is that argument fair? And when, when people maybe question with you the value of higher education, yeah, what is your response to that? That's a great question. Um, the theory of action is this, right? So you, the, the general public has this notion that some kind of education after high school is necessary and that it's, it's kind of the, the most viable path, particularly towards the middle class, again, for, for mostly underrepresented students. What I think is, uh, is an issue for a lot of folks is the affordability piece which I know is top of mind for a lot of uh, students and families, and then the outcomes piece, like, is this worth it? Will I get something out of it? The research does say across the board, yes, it is worth it. And despite what we're hearing in the, uh, in, in the popular press these days, that that particular investment does have a return. I think the issue is, and this is where the federal government can play a role, most students don't understand or realize that there is a set of options of 4,000 colleges and universities that they can take a look at, um, that they have an option set there where they can say, okay, which of these institutions will actually be the best fit for me as a student and what I want to do around affordability, around time to completion, that sort of thing. And so I think part of what the role of the federal government in there is to help increase the transparency about what institutions are doing and how their students are doing so that students can make more informed decisions about which institution is best for them. So as a side note, I love BU and I love all the institutions I've worked at. Whenever these kinds of tools come out, first thing I do is take a look at what do the data say about our students graduating on time? How much debt are they walking away with? 
because if we can provide students that information early on, then they can make better decisions about which institution will get them the ROI at the end. Sure. And that leads nicely into what you were doing at uh, Miami-Dade College, right? I yes, think your yeah. last role there was... I was so I was the vice provost for institutional effectiveness at Miami Dade College, and in my role there, I oversaw several offices, including the institutional research office, the planning policy and planning office, and assessment office, and then the accreditation office. And my role there was really to help make sure that we were using data in a very uh, intentional and strategic way to make sure that the students who were entering Miami Dade College were graduating. Uh, with little debt and would graduate with kind of good prospects for for their economic mobility. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that you you know that BU is doing amazing things around data, incredible yes. building on yeah. campus. I'm, curious, I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. you know, that plays such an important role, not only in what you do, but in so many careers these days. H have you ever thought that you wish you could go back and and <laughs> study data sciences? Oh my God, yeah, when I saw that, particularly that we were creating a data science program, I was super, super interested and super envious because, and to be fair, the field has gotten a little farther around that, particularly in the use of machine learning, and now with the use of artificial intelligence, intelligence in terms of leveraging those big data sets. But yes, um, the, the interesting part that I've noticed, and, and again, th this is from my vantage point when working at the federal government and even now working at the Gates Foundation, is um, capa institutional capacity to leverage those data very significantly. And so while I really appreciate that uh, institutions like BU can set these things up, I think about the lower resource community colleges that may have either one person or half a person that's doing the data analysis. And we all know how important the data analysis to ensure that we're actually doing a good job. Yeah. So for people that maybe aren't super uh, knowledgeable about the world of philanthropy. Yes. I think most people know that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is one of those institutions in the world that really is changing the world. So it, from an outsider's view, it must seem mm. like you've got this dream job now. How did that <laughs> yes. come to fruition for you? So interestingly, because of my roles, both at the department um, and then at Miami-Dade College, I was always in the vicinity of philanthropy. I had interacted with a number of um, foundations and organization, advocacy organizations. Um, and higher ed is super small, right, as a field. And so folks know each other a lot. Um, while I was doing work at Miami-Dade, I was actually working on a project that was being funded by the Gates Foundation at that time. So we were on each other's radars. And then at that point, when I was looking to move to the West Coast for family and personal reasons, um, they reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in joining our team? Um, and at that point, the team that they were interested in filling, uh, so we have a post-secondary success strategy at the foundation. It's a fairly small strategy compared to all the global things that the foundation does on health and nutrition um, and vaccines, et cetera. Um, they were interested in learning from colleges and universities about what works in making um, uh, making progress toward equitable student success and then translating what works into kind of resources that can then be used by other institutions. So I said, this is great because I've had experience on a campus. I know what the field looks like from kind of a national perspective. I'm going to apply those lessons. Um, and that, so that's what I did. As soon as I got to the foundation, I 
worked on the project that I was being funded by when I was at Miami Dade College uh, to understand uh, how colleges and universities transform themselves for more equitable student success. So now, let's say you and I are meeting at a dinner party. How do yes. you explain to people what your <laughs> role is and the kind of oh my god, yes. working on? And uh, one other piece I'd add to that is, what do you think people misunderstand about the Bill and Melinda mm. Gates Foundation? That's that's a that's a good question. So, at a dinner party, I basically say I help make sure that more students, and particularly students of color and students from low-income backgrounds, make it to and through college. Um, and so, kind of that's the elevator pitch. Um, and there's a bunch of different ways that, that we can do that. There's definitely the financial aid portion, making sure students can afford it. But I'm more interested in what what can institutions do? Because at the end of the day, it's the institutions that actually sh that should have the onus on transforming how they operate to make sure that they don't set up barriers for students uh, coming in. Uh, on, on the kind of the philanthropy side, one of the things that I very much appreciated and learning uh, from this work is that particularly the Gates Foundation plays a catalytic role um, in, and in fact, we call ourselves catalytic investors, right? So if you think about the capital that's required to actually do the things, you need a spark. And, and the role of philanthropy is to invest in things, particularly riskier things that governments can't or that markets just won't do just because there's not, a, you know, like revenue uh, there. Um, and so, it was super interesting to come from the federal government to an institution to philanthropy now to see, again, in this entire enterprise, philanthropy plays a very, very specific role. Um, we as a philanthropy can't afford to do all of the things. And so what we want to do is help catalyze movement that hopefully then government funding, other private funding, et cetera, will then help sustain. So I also know that you have continued to be engaged with BU for a long time, but lately you've actually, you know, speaking of philanthropy, you've been helping out with our team at the university uh, in helping them improve their relationships with foundations. Can you tell us a little bit more about? Yeah, no, been it's like? been, yeah, it's been great. I've been connected. Yeah, the, it, it's it's been super, super interesting because it was an advisory group of folks in philanthropy, particularly made up of BU alums. So number one, it was super um satisfying to see other B alum in the field with me. Um, and so we have regular meetings as an advisory group. And then we share just like, hey, from our perspective, here's what would work um, if you're interested in um, learning more about how philanthropy works, what are we looking for, that sort of thing. So it's been uh, it's been personally very uh, gratifying to me to, to be connected to that particular network as well. Well, it's awesome. And thank you for doing that for us. Yeah, of course. So you finished your undergraduate degree what, 2001? One. So we're talking yes. 22 years ago. You've wow. had incredible, ex I know, sorry. <laughs> You've <laughs> had these incredible experiences. And I'm wondering, you know, when you reflect back, um, how you might, you know, see things having gone differently. And to that end, I, we actually have a question from a current Sergeant student. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Mariana, who, who wants to ask you something. So that's good. Hi, I'm Mariana Molinaga. I'm a senior at Sargent College studying nutrition on the dietetics track, and I'm proud to be you. My question is, if you had to start your career over again, what would you do differently? Oh, my goodness. Thank That's a great question, Mariana. Thank you for that. Oof. 
I look back at kind of the, the steps I've taken um, and I think about whether or not it would have been better for me to realize that I was interested in higher education administration or working at colleges and universities earlier. Um, but then I realized, no, I actually had to go through that entire process, have that experience while have, having my academic experience at Sargent to realize kind of where my heart was leading me towards. And so if I had to do it all over again, I don't know that I would do anything too, too differently because I think I, I, I look for opportunities to get involved in student life. And that's what gave me the spark to be on the trajectory I am now. I will say one of the things I do appreciate is understanding where programs, whether they're in, something you're interested in or not, can really help prepare you. And so the rigor with which those sergeant classes were from, like were delivered still sticks in my mind because I still remember all the anatomy and physiology courses, all the things and, and kind of the critical thinking that allowed me to to be successful where I am now, regardless of subject matter, I got because I was doing that particular program. Well, I, Archie, I think if you had asked me in 2000, 2001, where you'd end up, I, I might not have known a destination, but I certainly would have known that you were on your way to doing amazing things. I know I'm repeating myself, but you know, the outside view, you're at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You, I assume that you are working with Bill Gates fairly regularly. I mean, that's that's an incredible I, experience. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, this year, so uh, uh, our co-chairs, Bill and Melinda, are very involved in the work. And so I've had the great opportunity uh, to meet with Bill several times this year. And in fact, I helped staff him on a visit that he had to Chafee College in California this year because he's very interested, again, in how colleges and universities are really doing uh, their work to improve st uh, student success. So is this a dream job for you? Where where do you see yourself heading from here? What are, what's yeah. what are the things that you want to accomplish? I think I, I think at this point in my my career trajectory and my life, this is a dream job. I have an opportunity to really help catalyze some action. Um, I you would think it's easy work, but it's actually not easy work because what you want to do is make sure that our our co-chairs' uh, resources are invested well. I do miss the student interaction. I do miss being a student leader. So at the end of the day, and this is the secret for me, I still am that green jacket and I still am that red shirt. So after all of all of these layers of being, you know, career fed um, and being in philanthropy, I just want to make sure that more students feel welcome when they come to college and then are success and, and set up for success moving forward. So if I were to look maybe five, 10 years from now, maybe getting back to an institution um, at one point, I floated the idea of being a, a college president. And then when I worked for the department, I realized what college presidents actually had to do. Uh, so I said, I don't know, but I want to I want to go where I can make the most impact, particularly for for the students that we care about. I thought you were going to say maybe get in the classroom and and do some oh, uh, be a professor. Some, I can see that role. You know, you know, I actually adjunct adjunct faculty. I was an adjunct faculty member at GW, where I actually taught uh, in their graduate school of education there as well, and so. I, I do enjoy being in a classroom. So we'll see. Um, the research part of it, again, uh, is, is interesting because I, I haven't picked up the research piece in a, in a, long, in a long while. 
but again, I'm seeing all these opportunities potentially open up. So I'm going to jump in where, where I can. Awesome. Well, Archie, it's been uh, a real pleasure for me to get to catch up with you after decades. Uh, and I'm really excited to know that I'll, I'll stay connected to you and, and see where you go from here. But thanks so much for carving out some time for us. Thanks, Jeff. Really, really appreciate it. My thanks again to Archie for joining me and for all of his hard work improving student outcomes at institutions across the country. All of us who knew you back in the day, Archie, we're super proud. If you heard something that makes you proud to be you, I hope you'll join me in making a gift to the cause that matters to you most at bu.edu slash give. Thanks for listening to Proud to Be You. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your episodes. Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University and our partners, Five Tool Productions, a BU alumni-owned, Boston-based company specializing in video production, live streaming, and content marketing. Our theme from artist.io is Think About Lights by Ben Fox. All additional media in this episode has been shared by our guest. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash proud to be you.